Buonasera. My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao. Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima. Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze. Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Hello, Gabby Logan. I am really delighted to have you on this podcast. I'm so grateful that you've joined us. And there's so much I want to talk to you about. The labels that are associated with you is that you're a broadcaster, a presenter. You were a gymnast. A long time ago. Hello. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. I would I always I always get a bit embarrassed when people have that in my kind of introduction to anything because I think, oh, I stopped competing when I was 17. I'm 50 now. So it's a very long time ago. But I guess there are lots of things that are a legacy of that life that still exist within me. You know, having been a gymnast and been disciplined and done all that that training, there are things that, you know, are very intrinsic to me from then. What are they? I would say they are an ability to juggle quite well. You know, I don't mean to literally juggle, yeah, yeah. although we did do a bit of that, um, to, to be able to manage my time well. You know, if you're a student doing your A-levels and GCSEs and you're also training 30 hours a week and trying to be a normal teenager at times and all of that, trying to kind of balance off all those things, I think I got quite good at that. Um, I think it also gives you a discipline in life, you know, and learning that things sometimes hurt a little bit to get better and things can be a bit painful to push through something before you've mastered a, a, a skill um, and repetition of things to, to kind of, you know, learn what you're doing. You're never going to do it the first time. So all of those things, I think, apply to other things in life. And I can do the splits. Can you still do the splits? <laughs> yeah. That's so that's the most important thing, obviously, of all of that. Okay. But as you were talking, the thing that all sport, I guess, teaches you, which connects to the kind of my main question is about 
how you face challenges. And at the moment, what is the biggest challenge you're facing or have faced that I guess that discipline has given you some capacity to to manage? Yeah, I think whatever phase of life I've been in, and you know, you, you talk to me now as a 50-year-old and in the middle of life and all of the kind of changes that happen regarding kids leaving home and, you know, reassessing your kind of worth and value and who you are, all of those things um, are, are kind of very present right now in, in, in my life. But wherever I've kind of life's taken me in different challenges that I've had, I think what having a kind of sporting background does and that kind of intense sporting background it's a bit of fortitude, I think, probably, and um, a bit of strength that you don't realise you're accruing at the time. You know, you're doing something for an end goal, which is always a competition. Or you're training for, you know, to try and get into a squad. There's lots of goal setting goes on. But then in real life, away from sport, you might have aims and things that you'd like to achieve, but the, the goals are quite different, you know, and you can't always measure things in the same way. You know, you're not going to get a medal put around your neck because you might have had some kind of a nebulous idea about being um, a better person, but you know, and that might manifest itself in certain ways, but you know, nobody's going to come to you at the end of the day and say, well done, here's your medal. You were a nice person today. Um, so, so I think life and, and its challenges have definitely been, for me, definitely been helped by that, that background that you can tap into. Somebody described the other day to me, we were talking about cold water swimming, which I love. And they said, that you get into the water and it's never easy ever, you know, no matter how, how much you do it, it always feels incredibly cold and ridiculously, you know, kind of freezing your body has to react to it every time. But that pushing yourself into something that's a bit uncomfortable physically, I think is really important to keep doing that in a way, because uh, that's something that I grew up doing. So I recognize it as a happy place you know, <laughs> where I, I feel like I grow from that experience. Because there's something about stepping yourself out of your comfort zone and having the wherewithal, the endurance to kind of suffer it, that when mm. you get through it, there's a sense of relief or there's a sense of, mm. I don't know if it's an agency or a kind of like a relief, I guess. Whereas if you stay very narrow and not out of your comfort zone, you you somehow shrink. Mm. But I, what I was really interested in is, as you were saying, sports are very bi-directional. You win or you lose. And internally, mm. you have to kind of pick yourself up, pull yourself mm. back together and keep going. And mm. life is much more messy and chaotic, but also it can strike you out of the blue for no reason, for no way that you can understand. And I was thinking, you know, with your brother dying so suddenly of a heart attack when you were, mm. how old were you? So I, I was 19. He no, was 15. He was 15. Um, yeah, he was almost 16. I was just 19. And my sister was 18. And my other brother was six. Yeah. So that was obviously one of the most sudden things that any of us have ever and probably will ever experience, hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, I imagine there's a, that life changed at that moment, that there was the before you and the after you, but also the before you and after your whole family system, your mum and your dad, mm. your siblings. Yeah, the whole family dynamic changes and um, has never gone back to what it was like before. Um, and I think when you stop chasing that and thinking that it will come back to some kind of normalcy, actually, it's a great release because 
you know, you, you can't, you can't find that, um, kind of magic formula that's going to take you all back to a time when everything was great and happy. And there was, you know, because it, it can't be because, because he's forever missing. So, um, and he's not in that group that was, you know, the family before he is in our memories, obviously, but he's not physically with us and his life hasn't developed and gone on. You know, he's stopped at 15 and, um, that, was you know something that everybody navigated in very different ways, and that taught me a lot about grief because obviously there's no path that is you know kind of the the right one or no. the one that you know everybody should be on. So everybody's different. Everybody comes to that moment in time, following a different route to get to where we were that morning of that day. You know we've all we're all different people. So the before and the after is definitely something that I I wrote about it in my own uh, kind of book um, mm. about. The kind of it really did feel like the first place I should start in the book, and I, I wrote the opening chapter was about his death because it felt like the most seminal moment in my life. And I, I think what is really important what you're saying is that while you're still kind of fighting to get back, like looking at the past, how we were, we were kind of this innocent, happy family. You know, we mm. we had a successful dad, we travelled the world, we had a lovely mum, and you know we had challenges and you had the terrible um, Bradford fire. Was mm. that after or before your brother died? Uh, Bradford was before. Bradford was um, a few years before, 19, yeah, it was about seven years before. The Bradford fire was uh, a fire that took out pretty much the whole of a stand um, during a football match and a horrific event which cost, you know, a lot of lives and very um, tragic for not just those group of people who were at the football match, they're kind of, you know, the trickle effect, as you can imagine, in the community. And obviously those families generationally later, you know, I did a documentary a few years ago and went to interview some of the families who, you know, years and years later, still feeling the effects of, of those losses. And some families lost three generations because obviously it was a big, um, well, not obviously, but it was a big celebratory day because it was the final day of the season. They'd won promotion to the next division. So there were families who'd been season ticket holders and saw it as a day when they'd all go celebrate grandparents with their their sons and their grandchildren and their daughters and their grandchildren. So um, we were very lucky. We were in the same stand, my siblings and I and my mum, but we we got out alive and unscathed. And in terms of our physical being, I think my dad definitely had emotional trauma from that, which was never really dealt with properly because he, as assistant manager of the club, saw a lot of things that other people didn't see. And he um, went to a lot of funerals in the weeks afterwards as well. So we had a um, a very uh, tragic thing that we were involved with, but at the time we were never offered any counselling or, you know, as children to have gone through that, you know, just go back to school on Monday. And in fact, I went to gymnastics the following day, the following morning I went to gym and it was just to kind of get on with life. And um, I think less so for us probably as children, slight naivety, you know, what was going on, or more naive anyway, but for my parents, I think it was... Um, something that perhaps they should have been either offered or sought out some kind of counselling. But I think in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, it probably wasn't something that was in abundance. No, I mean, I can imagine the images that your father and mum actually carried uh, are kind of still in him. And and I would imagine would affect how they grieved your brother because Mm. a pre-existing trauma would connect to a new trauma. What I kind of really got from you, which I think is so important and kind of, I think, useful for the listeners is when you don't fight 
the reality of what's happened. When you can find a way of recognizing that life as it was is never going to be the same. And you allow that change within you and you still invest in life. It's it's not Mm. like you fight it and feel furious and get kind of locked Mm. in it, but you kind of allow the grief and the pain to change you and to change who you are and your whole family system and still live and still get on and Mm. still love. And I wonder what Mm. is it within you that enabled you to do that? I don't know why I was able to do that specifically. I did seek out help. um, And if I compare myself, say, to my dad, who lost his son, his best friend, his, um, you know, the person who was kind of emulating him professionally, but probably going to be better and, you know, even better than he had done and all those things. Yeah, I think my dad, um, who had, as we just discussed, experienced Bradford a few years before that, he did get very angry and he did get very um, internally furious with the world. And his way of dealing with that was to self-medicate and, you know, drank a lot. He was always a quite a big drinker, but he drank a lot and he closed himself off from from anything that was going to be kind of positive. And, and he wrote about this himself in a book that he wrote a few years later and kind of apologized to my younger brother in, because he caused him, I think, a lot of a lot of issues emotionally because he closed himself from him, you know, and he was only six years old at the time. And so, and so I think I was lucky because I was, I was 19. I was about to go to university, had, had had a gap year. So I was already kind of released a little bit from the family uh, nest, if you like, you know? And so I was on my own journey. I didn't need to be told to do these things. I felt I had the, you know, the power to go and find help myself. And eventually when I did seek out some support and counselling and speaking to people, talking therapies kind of worked for me in processing, I think, what, you know, why I was feeling like I was about certain relationships and how I was, you know, dealing with certain people, all those things, I suppose by my mid-twenties, I'd I felt a lot better about, which wasn't, you know, that huge amount of time. And when you consider some people probably might take another 20 years, I was very lucky because I I entered into my the relationship that I'm still in with my husband around my mid-20s you know and I think if I hadn't dealt with a lot of those things before I'm not sure that relationship would have been successful you know we eventually got married a few years after that and still are so and not that that's the you know the kind of barometer of success but I think it is one of the things that you look at isn't it to say have I managed to deal with something because also then you go into your own chapter of having your own children and those you know those feelings and those um circumstances that arise, such as when my, my own son turned 16, which was the age my brother never got to. And all of those things, I, I don't think I could have done in a, a way that, that I have if I hadn't had that help early on. I think I was looking more to my mum's model of behaviour. You know, she was very positive and wanted to find answers, you know, and those answers were not going to tell her why her son had been taken away, but she just wanted to grow, I think. And understand a bit more about life, the universe, you know, the answers to the big questions. And I kind of watched her behaviours, I suppose, more than my dad's, which didn't seem to be a very healthy way to deal with it. And as I say, I am absolutely not judging his, you know, kind of, you know, you can't be in somebody's shoes and understand the pain. Men and women 
do tend to grieve differently. You can get men that grieve like women and vice versa. And of course, we're all on a kind of spectrum. But certainly men of your dad's generation of his, the upbringing that he had, emotions were kind of alien creatures that Mm. kind of belong to other people that you shouldn't have. And so the only, I imagine the only mechanism he had was anesthetizing, self-medicating. And alcohol is the most common way Mm. of doing it. And of course, being furious. It's very sociable, isn't it? Very easy to, you know, you know, he can go and do that anywhere. It wasn't like he had to hide down a dark alley. And yeah, he, he'd culturally kind of, he was in a very tough profession as a professional footballer. He'd had to really toughen himself up as a 15 year old. He was sent from Cardiff to Leeds, left home at 15 to become a professional footballer. And the son of a docker. So he had a young, I mean, he had a tough childhood. Tough, tough. Yeah. His parents were very, very um, working class, lots and lots of jobs at the same time, you know, Um, and didn't, he didn't see much of his parents during, you know, his childhood because they were, his mum would work late. She, after she'd finished her day job, she'd clean offices in the evening. She would come home late. His siblings were older, so they were kind of off doing their thing. And he talked about you know, unlocking the door to his house at 11 years old and a dark house and nobody there. Oh, and, gosh. you know, um, his siblings who are still with us, his my auntie and uncle are lovely people who who adored him. But I guess they were older teenagers and they weren't kind of around so much. And he was, you know, going off and playing his football and they all supported that and thought it was great. And then he went off at 15, left the family home, you know, um, which is so, yeah. very young. Not not like he was going away to come back in the holidays. He was gone at 15. I think he had to really toughen himself up on the outside. But he's still, even before my brother died, you know, he he was somebody who would weep. He would cry, you know, in private, you know, things set him off. Uh, he'd watch something on TV and, you know, it would make him cry. So he wasn't scared to show his emotions to the nuclear family. But to the outside world, obviously, he was this hard guy who played a tough sport. Tough, you know, he had a tough image in a tough team. Yeah, the Leeds team he played for had this really tough image. So there was a bit of a dichotomy kind of going on there, really, with, you know, kind of his outside self and then the person that was inside and that we could all see. So his his dealing with Daniel's death kind of, I suppose, wasn't a surprise that that was the way he carried on, the you know, his pattern of behaviour. And your mum, I mean, you're Catholic. Did she go to faith? Is that what she, is that where she turned? We'd kind of been a bit lapsed. And in the last kind of few years up to his death, we hadn't really been to church very much. And she did, of course, speak to, because he had a Catholic funeral. So she was speaking to the priest around that time a lot. And then she she had a lot of Jewish friends and um, they kind of created a shiver when he died. And oh, they were nice. around all the time and doing all the kind of food and everything. And so yeah. she spoke to a lot of her Jewish friends and um, I think she, um, through them a rabbi. And, and the then, rituals. Yeah, and the, the rituals of death that kind of are a bit more demarcated um, yeah. and a bit more, there's a bit more of a process that, uh, you know, people go through. Um, and she just would read lots of spiritual books and she, you know, kind of spoke to, I think she she joined in a, a group. I'm not sure what the name of the group was, but it was, you know, kind of exploring different religions and um, multi-faith groups, I think. Yeah, quite happy to speak to anybody really about, you know, she made friends with a woman who was a medium who she wanted to um, talk to about, you know, anything that she felt she could connect, connect herself with, with Daniel, obviously, but also then 
ask questions you know about yeah what what you know what, what the hell's now, going what on next yeah. yeah and then a, fr- a friend of hers who had sadly also lost a son a couple of years before was a good source of um who was also a very spiritual woman was a real source of comfort and um never never gave her false hope i think that was the thing that i think she re- really appreciated so as you, you're kind of describing that, it's so clear, you know, that there was so much that gets passed down from your grandparents, both sides of the family, from your and then your parents mm. to you, and then what you've transferred to your children, that there's a kind of link of both sport and tragedy, but also a kind of way of endurance, and yet... Mm. A kind of vulnerability too. I mean, I can feel that Daniel, you would always feel his loss. And I guess looking at your son, that must be particularly poignant and maybe particularly scary that you identify your son with Daniel. It was around the time of his 15, 16 kind of age when when Daniel died. And I think because he's older and physically now my son's very big he's six foot six he wow. plays rugby he's a massive guy like his dad he looks so different to my brother now there are so many other things you know because Daniel was a really great footballer you know he was he was signed for Leeds United who were the man city of their day they'd won the league the year before everybody said he was so talented and he, you know I'd never really watched him play because I'd, I'd I'd have my own sport and I was doing you know so I'd seen him play a couple of times but I might you know my dad doesn't give praise lightly and he was very, you know, said he was he was the real deal, and he kind of, of course, the first twenty years I spent going, oh, okay, so now he'd probably be playing in a World Cup. Now he'd be, doing, you know, and you start yeah. to think about the life, and he might not have had any of those things. He might have had a terrible accident, and you know, broke his leg, and he might never have played again, or you know, life might not have worked out the way that it looked like it was going. The ghost of him followed you in your life. Yeah. So when I was in my mid-30s thinking, oh, I wonder if he'd be married now. Would he have children? And how that would affect, you know, when all the things that were kind of going on with my dad over the last 20 years that related to, you know, his health, which was related to his lifestyle choices. And every time there was a bit of a tragedy or a kind of like drama with him, I would think to myself, this probably wouldn't be happening. I wouldn't be rushing up to Leeds to see how we can get him some help. All these things that kind of we were doing, because you think, well, they would have stayed, my parents would have stayed together and then we would have had a more kind of normal family dynamic. So they divorced? Did- so yeah, they divorced um, within, well, when I was 30, they divorced, but they, things had not been great pretty much since Daniel died and, you know, got worse and worse. And and so I think that also, you know, you start to kind of think about, as you say, the parallel life, but, but not to the point where I ever feel, oh, you know, we've been robbed because actually you start to deal with what you deal with and you realise that, uh, well, you deal with what you've got. Families aren't always normal, you know, there's, there's, there's no, no such thing as there yeah. as, yeah. And everybody's, you know, everybody's family is different and things come along that test you and things come along that change the trajectory of kind of where you thought you were going. And this is our family, you know, this is what we, what we have, you know, I don't ever kind of want to sit and kind of bemoan the fact that we did because I feel very blessed and very lucky to have the family I've got um when you have children then you look at the the grandparents and think oh it's a shame that we're having to kind of organize two visits over Christmas or it's all those things isn't it those logistical things where you kind of think I wish everybody could just be together in one room room. and that would be nice yeah but um your parents are both still alive yeah remarkable really my mum's remarkable because um in spite of the you know 
the pain and everything that she's also gone through and pain of divorce, even though, you know, it's a loss. one it's a person loss. might. Yeah. Yeah. And she's incredibly supportive of my dad still, you know, she will go around to where he lives. If I say there's been a, you know, something's happened and I need you just to check up on something because he's on a lot of medication. He's, he's diabetic now and he has a propensity to sometimes forget to take his medicine and things like that. And she will, you know, she will, um, knit round, she'll do things. She'll, you know, she's there. Um, even though she's busy, she's got her own life. She's got lots going on. So she's, you know, she's very kind. Um, I think she still to... loves him in a way. I mean, oh yeah, given... yeah. And the father of her kids. We always joke on the fifth um, of June every year. She puts on our family WhatsApp that it's her wedding anniversary, and we always tease her and go, "No, you can't have a wedding anniversary if you're not you're not married anymore." And um, she went, "This is the day I, you know." So she she has no uh, bitterness, which I think is remarkably. Sane. Yeah. <laughs> Very sane. But also, yeah. even when, you know, when someone dies, the love doesn't die and the relationship continues. And I think with divorce, particularly when you have kids together, the relationship continues. It's forever changed. Mm. And the love may have changed, but there's a there's a bond there and a history. Mm. That, and your mum mm. had the wisdom to kind of go with the loving, compassionate side of that rather than turning away and shutting down and mm. kind of punishing your dad, which really is in a way poisoning herself. Yeah. Whether she's, you know, consciously done this about lots of things in her life, but I think she's very good at uh, recognising that she would only be harming herself if she carried that bitterness around with her. She'd only be, you know, as you say, poisoning herself and giving herself anxiety and, you know, um, issues. So she doesn't wear that cloak, you know, she chooses to, you know, be much more, um, I always say she's got, you know, she's got very tough skin because she kind of has dealt with a lot. He's not always been kind about her, you know, but she doesn't, you know, she lets it kind of like water off a duck's back and still turns up when he needs a bit of help. So yeah, she's been a good role model. But is that modeling what has enabled you to stay married? Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, I think I I married a very different person. Of you know, course, I didn't of marry course. my dad, my dad, which um which I think is Helps. you know um helpful. <laughs> um, and I think you know, like so, we're coming up for twenty um three years next year. So twenty two and a half years we've been married. Yeah, and which has flown by in lots of ways. But of course, you have those moments through a marriage where. I would say, you know, might be a month, might be two months where you, things just aren't clicking and you, you know, you kind of, you're just kind of functioning, going through kind side of emotions of life. Yeah. Yeah. But there's not really any, you know, you kind of think if we didn't live in this house and have these children, would we at the moment still want to actually spend any time with each other? And, you know, luckily they've been very few and far between. But when those times have come, come along, I think I've, I've always kind of known deep down that, you know, that I could choose to love him, you know, and keep yeah. that, keep looking for the things that I love really about him. Liked. Yeah. And also having really frank conversations. I think being really honest about why you think that that, you know, at that period in time, things haven't been working as well. So I think that our communication, our lines of communication are pretty open. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that building of trust through having difficult conversations. Is it like a discipline from sport? I mean, I'd link it mm. to your early discipline in that you can choose where you put your attention and you can choose mm. the intention of what you want. And yours mm. is, I'm going to choose love and keeping this going. You can choose not, we all mm. can, but yours mm. is to go for the kind of 
to love him and to connect with him. But the the other thing I was thinking about, which is a, this isn't a natural segue because I'm not a natural presenter, is I was wondering if in the shadow of your brother's life, you've been doing a very male-oriented job, like a sports mm. presenter, and particularly in, a, in the past, more a male world, but still a very male world. And I wondered if there was a link between Daniel and you, what you chose to do. Mm. I didn't fully kind of appreciate that until I sat down to write about that period of my life. And I definitely think I didn't ever intend to be a sports broadcaster. So from, you know, from the out, I wanted to work in telly, but I never thought sports broadcasting was going to be for me. I didn't see many women doing it and just hadn't thought There were no it. women. And I mean, there was I, Sue Barker. Yeah, Sue was, I think Sue started to do Wimbledon around the time I started to work, but but she was just doing Wimbledon and she was an ex-tennis player and that seemed mm. like a natural thing for her to do. You know, uh, there were certainly uh, no women doing football, um, no. you know, on telly. And so when I went to Sky, I honestly kind of went there from local radio thinking, well, it was a way to live in London. And then I'd get the job, you know, I went to Sky Sports thinking I'd do this for a year or two and then I'd get the job outside of, I didn't, still didn't think it was a job that I would be um, kind of committing, not that I didn't want to commit to it, but I just didn't see where I could go. And then when I started um, kind of working in football, I'm really enjoying it. It felt like a quite a natural place because I knew a lot of people who I was talking about. Um, you know, I knew some of the managers who come into the studio because they're people my dad. So I felt very comfortable. And this then, is your world. Yeah. And then I started kind of when I'd be prepping for something, I'd look at, I'd be doing something about a football, look at his age and I go, oh my gosh, he's the same age as Daniel now. And I wonder, oh. you know, if they'd be playing in the... And so I think I probably was drawn to that world a bit more because of that. And it did keep me there long enough then for it to become my career, you know, and suddenly it was what I loved doing. And I really, you know, kind of felt at home and enjoyed the the experience. So I, I definitely think his death had an impact on me doing what I did. Um, not, it wasn't at all conscious. I wasn't like, I want to work in football. So I feel like I'm connected. And I still get people now will send me messages on Instagram saying, oh, I played with your brother when he was an under 10 oh. player. Or I, you know, I was just telling somebody last week, a, a friend of mine who'd lost her sister, similar age. And we were talking just generally about stuff. And she said um, about, you know, what she thinks the same thing about her sister and where she'd be in her life. And I said about my mum had bumped into the parents of a girl that we knew my brother had kind of been seeing this girl, but he was 15 and it wasn't like, you know, a girlfriend, girlfriend. He'd actually been to their family house the day before for some food and which we didn't really know. And the dad had just told my mum this, you know, kind of like a few weeks ago. Ooh. And, and that he said that she still thought about him and still had incredible kind of not feelings that she's married and had affection. children, but she still carried, carried that affection him and so you know you can go over 30 years from a death and still be kind of blindsided by that kind of you know connection and information and I'm not quite sure why um I mentioned that but just that you know oh kind of goodness. I suppose me doing the job that I do has elicited more of those stories sometimes because I'm yeah. kind of in the public eye you know and I feel so moved hearing that and it's so bittersweet isn't it like hearing mm. a new story about your brother in some way brings him back to life something mm. that you didn't know and your mum hadn't heard, but mm. also knowing that he's remembered and thought of with such affection mm. and kind of sweetness, it sounds like, mm. 30 mm. years afterwards, kind mm. of also is consoling in some way. For what is inconsolable, which is when your brother or your son dies, other people mm. loving them 
helps with that in, inconsolability, if that's a word. Yeah, I think with any death, you know, I sadly had to go to two funerals in quick succession earlier this year of two parents of boys who played rugby with my son on the school team. I mean, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't make it up like that just these poor boys were experiencing as a team, they were experiencing this whole thing. So, and all their friends, you know, and, but to watch them kind of go to two funerals in quick succession and the poor families obviously as well, who are dealing with all of this. And, um, I was reminded again, kind of how in those eulogies and they were cracking people, you know, they were great mm-hmm. people who did a lot in their communities, had brilliant families and had brought up, you know, great, great kids. And, and the one was uh, the mum and one was the dad on each, each of those losses. And their eulogies were all about the amazing things that they'd done and how they had loved and been loved and how they had made people feel. And, you know, nobody talked in their eulogies about what their car was or how big their house was or what, you know, what position they got to in their company or, you know, those things weren't of interest. Exactly. The material um, wealth of their life wasn't, wasn't discussed at all. It was all about the connections that they've made in life. And actually you think kind of, you know, they were in their early fifties. They'd obviously had more time to make those connections. You know, Daniel was only 15. And so I guess to hear about those connections and that love, as you say, is really heartening because he'd had less time to, you know, to experience those, yeah, those emotions. So yeah, hearing any, you know, anything like that, I think is, is comforting. And I'm sure going back to those two um, deaths and those families, you know, they will hear those stories, won't they? In the next, you know, we've been on a big walk with one of the families. Quite a few of us have gone for a big Sunday walk and you, you want to kind of relay little things to you yeah. know, one of the, the husband, you know, about his wife and how special she was and things that she'd done. And, you know, um, what you remember, you're not in each other's pockets all day long, are you? So you don't know all the things, you know, that people do. And it's um, another good reminder, I think, about what really is important. In therapy terms, I hate kind of using these terms, but I think sometimes they're helpful. There's this term post-traumatic growth, which I'm sure you've heard of, which it never denies the level of the loss. But what it describes is that you're forever changed by what's happened to you, that your gratitude for life deepens. And what you're talking about, your perception of what matters changes Mm. and your capacity to give and receive love that people becomes paramount. Mm. And it feels like what you've, one of the things that has not necessarily changed, but grown in you is recognizing that what really matters is, is how you're remembered and loved by the people around you rather than the size of your house or your paycheck. Mm. Yeah, I think um, that is definitely one of the, (laughs) you can't call them a plus point. I had a friend in my early twenties and I used to joke with him that it was a bit of a superpower because you kind of had this early insight, you know, into things that perhaps you didn't think you were going to deal with until you were in your late forties or your fifties or your, you know, that kind of close death. Because for a lot of people, the first time they deal with that can be their it's own parents, can't it? Yeah. So I said, you know, I felt like in my early twenties, I had this insight almost that I was privileged to see, you know, a little bit of life beyond me. I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, you kind of, you're moving anyway from a teenager into an adult from being very self-centered and kind of, you know, the world kind of revolves around you and, you know, you know, and then as you get become an adult, hopefully that shifts, you know, and you realize that you're part of a bigger picture. But I think when you experience a 
a death very early like that, it's a real kind of that the door doesn't just just get peaked open. You know, it goes it goes wide open. Wide open. <laughs> you get a lot more of that um, insight. So, yeah, I do I do think it's something that you can harness and take positivity from. Because it means that when shit happens, you kind of really recognise what is really bad and what isn't. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you... You don't mind or you don't feel it. No. Yeah. Or that you can't have empathy when smaller things, or in your mind, smaller things happen to other people that you think, well, that's not that bad. You're going to be okay. (laughs) That's not terrible. You're still breathing for one thing. Yeah. kind of. You wouldn't have very many friends if you went around saying, well, you're not dead. (laughs) Well, you're not dead, so get on with it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there are degrees of that. Um, but I do think from your own personal kind of perspective, you know, you can, you can try and kind of put a little bit of order on things and, you know, it's not terrible. Okay. That th- this has happened in the house. We'll sort it. We'll fix it. Or that's happened, you know? Um, and, and when you have teenagers, it's another reminder, I think, you know, when they go through their first heartbreak and things like that, you have to then go, okay, this is really big for them. This is huge. And I'm, you know, I have to remember, put myself in their shoes and remember what that felt like and, and not say, you're going to be fine. What's wrong? What's wrong yeah. with you? Plenty of fish in the sea. Um, and actually feel it, really feel it. I'm glad you're really feeling it because this is really important for you to, to feel this emotion and to not kind of shrug stuff off. You know, that's also uh, another thing that you, you know, kind of aware of, of owning your emotions, you know, really feeling situations and not stopping yourself from feeling hurt or disappointed or allow and allowing yourself to have emotion. And that's really different from your dad, isn't it? That you can really let the emotion cascade through you and through that kind of open yourself to it and from it, allow it to change you. But also, you know, in a time where young people have been parented more than they've ever been parented before, and that your children, I imagine, to a great extent, have had a much more protected life than you've had mm-hmm. in that th- these things happen to you. It feels like you're open to not kind of diminishing their experience by comparing it to yours, which often parent, we as parents do. It's like, get over it. In comparison to what I've done, it's nothing. But you've really wanted yeah. to kind of hold the value of their experience that they're compare you know comparison on all things yeah. is ruinous yeah they haven't chosen you know the the situations that they have found themselves in and obviously they haven't you know gone through certain things that i did but i wouldn't want them to have no. to do that to no. to you know to grow but equally it's important that they do experience disappointment and setbacks and i was always you know a parent from a very early age who wanted them to you know i didn't want to protect them from those things in the sense of, of course, you want to protect them from things they shouldn't see or experience at a, at a young age. But equally, they, you know, I remember my daughter um, when she was, Lois was four, my mum always had a little mask card next to her bed from my brother. So it's a picture of my brother in a prayer and she just Ooh. always had it next to her bed. And Lois picked it up and this never doesn't make me cry. Lois yeah. picked it up and she read it. She must have been five maybe. She she was a bit precocious, but she read this and she looked at the date of his death. And then she just held it and she looked at my mum and she said, you lost your child. That must be so sad. And, um, and my mum just burst into tears because it was that recognition from Lois to my mum that God, the pain of that, you know, she is a daughter and she kind of connected all those familial dots together very quickly. And 
And my mom said, because I wasn't in the room at the time, um, I think my mom was looking after her. My mom said it was just this real kind of moment where yeah. Lois understood, you know, she kind of had the um, the insight almost that, that that must have been incredibly painful. And so I think that moment onwards, like if he came up in conversation, she'd always kind of like put her arm around me or, oh. you know, give me a hug or, you know, it was... Um, she got it. Really... Yeah, amazingly, she, yeah, she she found kind of the capacity to understand at that point without having to go through it herself. <laughs> the purity of her acknowledgement of your mum's suffering from such a heartfelt, properly heartfelt mm. place mm. feels like a blessing. Like hearing you mm. saying it, it felt like a blessing from God in a way from a child, doesn't it? Because it's so mm. un filtered and pure it's, t- it's so it's so uncontrived there's no there's no kind of like it's not like it was in a big public place where she wanted to kind of like yeah. attention for saying you know it's a very private thing and she just happened to pick this thing up and it wasn't like she was wanting other people to notice that she had this it was a just two people you know so yeah it was a blessing and i think her understanding of, of this that situation has been a blessing actually So we're we're coming to the end and I feel kind of how you've let change change you, which is probably the healthiest thing anyone can do. Mm. And also recognising that change happens all the time. I mean, it's happened recently in your family with your children growing up and I guess it will happen Mm. with your career. So for Mm. people listening who where change is forced on them or changing, you know, through developmental reasons. What is the thing that you've learned that they could hear from you that would help them in the way it's helped you? I think going right back to the beginning of our conversation and talking a little bit about kind of how sport and what I learned from my sporting life and that's how that's filtered through my life. I think the unpredictability of what I did in sport, you know, I could make mistakes, um, things would go wrong and I'd go to bed at night and I'd wake up in the morning and everything would be okay. You know, the world kept on turning. I survived. And I think that change that will, you know, inevitably come in your life and the change that you should try and embrace as well, you know, because we can all try to hide from change, you know, and try not to have those experiences because we're afraid of what might happen. Mm. I think, you know, we're all, you know, most of, most of those experiences, 99.9% of those experiences, you, you will not regret, you know, you will come through and feel when you look back, that was something that, you know, gave me an incredible experience and has made me um, a better person or it's made me a stronger person. It's made my life more interesting in some ways. Those challenges created another way for me to see life. So as kind of fearful as it might feel at times, you know, to know and trust that it's going to be okay and the change will actually be for the best. um, I'm positive that that is the best way to, to live life. That is a lovely way to end. Thank you so much, Gabby Logan. Thank you, Julia. It's been a pleasure. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. 
Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. Hello, Sophie and Emily. Really nice to be here and talk about my fascinating conversation with Gabby Logan. And I wonder what came up for you. I am completely unsporty. Um, And so the part about sport being really an amazing teacher of resilience and endurance and also kind of like the temporal nature of sport where nothing's forever, the good's not forever, the bad's not forever, very much like life. It's quite revelatory to me because I think I spent oh. my whole school life sort of like hiding behind an equipment shed. So I, ne- I don't think I'd ever really thought about sport as like, oh, like, <laughs> can really teach you good things. <laughs> so that was quite revelatory for me. And it also made me think, okay, so if one of my children turns out like me and doesn't want to do any sports, like, are there other ways that you can teach that same sense of resilience? And I think my sense is that you can do it on a much smaller level with things that you would just sort of do with your children anyway. I mean, I think things that would that get you the same skills are things like, you know, playing board games where you lose sometimes and you kind of have to learn how to lose and you have to learn how to take turns or, you know, just anything that kind of involves clubs that your children do, anything that requires being with other people <laughs> and sometimes winning or losing are things that maybe not the same intensity as like being a sort of semi-professional gymnast, but all I think help us and help our children practice in a small way, those little acts of being resilient and learning how to be resilient by doing things that can feel hard. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yes, and I guess that's the way also you can support your children. I mean, it's very much more your territory than mine, Em, but with my children, I guess I think about it when things go wrong, trying to frame that within an, a positive, not trying to dismiss the upset of when something's gone wrong, like it's okay, it's part of the learning, but not to add to the shame of doing bad in an exam or that sense that there's possibility to try again, that by pushing and trying and learning, there is something to be gained. And also just like feeling how crap it is to not do well. <laughs> not feeling how crap it is and also surviving. Like you don't want to have to do that again, you don't have to, but also... I came out the other side and I felt better again. It didn't kill me. But saying that, I actually find that I'm a person who I would say at heart is basically a hedonist and avoids things that are painful and discomforting. When she was like, you know, pushing through the pain to get to the goods, I was like, nah, it's not ready. (laughs) I'd rather just do something else that didn't hurt. (laughs) Well, I think that's true about you on a physical level. I, I think that's the opposite of you on an emotional level. I feel like emotionally, you're like Olympic emotioner. (laughs) emotion feeler person (laughs) thanks em i'll I'll take that i don't think it's a bit exaggerated but sure (laughs) (laughs) i mean there was so much that felt so meaningful and powerful and so kind of deep thinking i think one of the things is how you keep wanting to go back and fix it or go back to normalcy and there isn't another normal but also how with Gabby, the ghost of her brother unconsciously came with her and influenced the decision-making in her life more than she fully realised until much later. Mm. I think she spoke so beautifully about Daniel and the bit about at the end where she was talking about Lois. I really cried when I listened yeah. to that. Mm. And it obviously has, in, in I think, like most people who experience something really, really traumatic, 
at a young age, it really does inform a lot of the rest of their lives. Not that they don't have fulfilling, meaningful, you know, like she's obviously had an incredible successful career and family, but it does inform that. I think it also made me think about how trauma really, really splits. And that I think we've got this idea that we want it to bring us together as families and make us support each other. But so often that actually can really fragment and kind of exacerbate pre-existing fault lines. You know, she's obviously done a lot of work and you've spoken a lot, mum, about this post-traumatic growth, that if you can survive it, you can learn from it. And then the sort of alternative, I guess, is, is when you kind of get stuck in it. And that's the time to get help. Yeah, and it also made me think when she was talking about the timing of these things when they happen in our lives makes quite a big impact when a big loss or bereavement or trauma happens. Are you two? Are you six? Are you nine? In her case, she was 19. And she reflected a bit around that in her own version of the story of the difference between being her youngest brother left at home when everything was falling apart versus her being able to be already in her own life, somewhat more independent. And often one can, you know, like me and Em and Tash and Ben, we've all got you as parents, but we were all born at different times in you and dad's life and we all had different experiences and so we all obviously we always were going to be different people but when things happen at different times in your life they do have a different impact don't they and sometimes are more sensitive than others. So I think that's about my children because my son was born just a few months before COVID so the first 18 months of his life he spent <laughs> in a small apartment in New York um, with just me and my husband. And, you know, I have this video of him when he's about one and he's sort of standing at his toy kitchen and he's like hand washing obsessively. <laughs> I think he actually in some ways was a really great time to have a really tiny baby because obviously that's what they want most. It's just you. And we were sort of lucky enough not to have a lot of the other stresses that other people, some people had. But it does make me wonder, like, will have that impacted him compared to my daughter who was born in a kind of more normal mm. <laughs> way of being with lots of people around and and I think it's one of those things that you you're never going to be able to unravel the tapestry and see what comes from where you know I also cried at that little moment about Lois saying that to her grandma and it really it actually really reminded me of a moment with my mother-in-law when she was dying and my daughter was sitting next to her and she was stroking just and just lying here in bed and stroking her hand, and her mother-in-law said, "Oh, that's that's my wrinkly old skinny hand." She was quite ill by this point, and she just looked down. My daughter looked down and st stroking it and said, "It's beautiful." <laughs> and it was just that instinctive lovingness of children, isn't it? That is so that just resonated that, I guess, you were talking about the innocence of that, of the sort of purity that's not about, a you know, she talked about it as not a performance. And it was, it's those moments are really moving with children, aren't they? Because they kind of can hurdle over some of the impediments that we bring of feeling awkward or uncomfortable or, don't, or trying to do what's right that can, can get in the way of those raw moments. So this is a bit of a tangent, but it is one that I get asked about a lot. Um, and it's really about divorce for children, how you talk to your children about divorce. You know, she was talking about, you know, the logistics of it, like they're having the two Christmases 
the working all of that out. And obviously her parents got divorced when she was an adult. So it's slightly different. Um, But I think in terms of thinking about how you want to support your children, if you're in the process of getting divorced, is to really frame it as we are still a family. We are just a family that looks different to how we looked before. And then really sort of think about, I think it's a really big strain on children to go backwards and forwards and have two different sets of rules and two different sets of everything. So the more consistent that you can make it, the better. And some people are actually sort of quite creative. Like I've worked with families where they have had the children stay in the house and the parents move in and out. Obviously, not everybody has that option. But I think that it feels to a child like quite a big load to be going backwards and forwards. So it's not just the emotional impact of like, our family looked like this and now it looks like this. It's also like the practical of, you know, mom's house smells like this, dad's like all my stuff here, all my stuff there. And so things that you can do to kind of decrease the sort of practical burden of that, I think can be really, really helpful for children. Mm. But that was a total tangent. It's a very important tangent. And also I think her mum modelled what is most important in separation and divorce, which is that the worst outcomes for children on divorce is parental conflict. But when the parents have devastating conflict, it is devastating and damaging for the children. And how Gabby's mum kept loving in her way, her dad, and that that was protective for the family. So loving not as in a marriage, But you can choose your attitude to separate, can't you? Yes. And I think sometimes as a parent, it means you have to, like it sounds like Gabby's mum did, swallow quite a lot, which is really hard. But I also think, you know, you were saying conflict leads to sort of the worst outcomes for children. And the opposite is also true that just because you're divorced doesn't mean that your children aren't going to go on to have healthy loving relationships in the future it's really how you manage the divorce rather than the fact of divorce i don't know what the exact statistics are but high conflict marriages where parents do not separate are right. also damaging so it's not necessarily that divorce in itself is harmful it's that high conflict is harmful and so staying together in a relationship where there's really high conflict is often might be better and happier for children and i've certainly heard those stories of Children being like, I wish you'd done it earlier. Our life is so much easier now that I don't have to deal with the fighting. Thank you, Emily and Sophie. You're always incredibly insightful. And a particular thank you to Gabby Logan, who was incredible. For those of you that like watching the podcast, do go to my YouTube channel, which is Julia Samuel MBE. Do also sign up for our wonderful Therapy Works newsletter. And tune in to our last episode of the season next week. Let me tell you about a podcast that I love. And honestly, I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier more confident and empowered in your motherhood. 
even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach, and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week she speaks to an incredible expert, such as Gabor Maté, Dr Julie Smith and me, to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast, just search Mother Kind.